have anything positive to say. Other laments, they either start or end with some sort of resolve to keep trusting in God despite their suffering. They might recall God's mighty acts of salvation and put their hope in that, but not Psalm 88. Throughout these 18 verses, the psalm stays stuck. Stuck in groaning, stuck in complaining. So does it feel a bit out of place? A bit inappropriate for us today? Is this meant to be a a righteous example of how we as God's people are, are meant to deal with suffering? Or was this once a good response back then in the Old Testament, but we can't pray like this any longer as Christians who have a sure hope? Or was this always a a negative example of how not to pray to God? Just how are we supposed to deal with this psalm? Well, how about we take a closer look at this psalm and think through why this psalm might or might not be a righteous response for us today. And now the the, the very top, the introduction of the psalm, it tells us a few things. Uh, there's a bunch of names there, sons of Korah, Maskil of Heman, the Ezrahite, according to the Mahalath Leonoth. Uh, it's all a bit obscure. None of it is particularly helpful in giving us a clear picture of who wrote the psalm or uh, in what particular situation the psalm is addressing. But what is clear to us is that this psalm was written for the director of music. Is this a, a bit surprising? Because like last week's psalm that we covered together, this psalm was meant to be sung together by God's people. This psalm was meant to be a repertoire of songs which God's gathered church would participate in bringing to God. And so let's get into it. Verses 1 to 2. The psalm starts in a pretty straightforward manner. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Nothing controversial except when you realize that this description of Yahweh, the the God of the psalmist, Lord, it's the shortest of all descriptions of God found in the psalms. Instead of heaping praise, instead of elaborate images of God's saving character, this psalmist goes straight into his request. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. This simple statement about God is followed by a simple request. Please hear my prayer. But we can already tell this is no simple request, is it? It's not your run-of-the-mill prayer, because this isn't just a prayer, it's a cry. This word is someone who cries out in, in distress. They're wailing loudly in total despair. And on top of that, this is a cry that lasts day and night. That is, he cries out to God continually, unceasingly. His whole existence is taken up by constantly asking God to help him. And what is this cry for help? Verses 3 to 5. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Completely and utterly overwhelmed. So much so that he describes his life as being on the brink of death. Now, there's no detail regarding what these troubles might be. 
Maybe he's being pursued by his enemies. Maybe he's suffering from a debilitating disease. Maybe it's a catastrophic loss of one or more family members like Job. We, we, we just don't know. But all we get here in the psalm is what life is like for the psalmist. He's already considered as one who's gone down to the pit. Like a corpse about to be buried, verse 4. As, it's as if he's already lying in his own grave, verse 5. Now, we mentioned it briefly last week, but we need to remember that in the Old Testament, what has been revealed about life and death, or death, life after death, rather, was very limited. And so to the psalmist, being dead was like being stuck in a black hole. There's nothingness there. There's no thought, no remembrance, no hope. But what is it exactly about his life? What is it exactly that really makes him feel like he's as good as dead? Well, the, the psalmist describes that for us in verse 5. It's actually being abandoned by God. The feeling that you don't remember the dead, the dead are cut off from you. See, the psalmist might be in deep suffering and pain. He might actually be on the verge of dying. But what's the thing that really gets him? What's the thing that makes it absolutely unbearable for him? It's the fact that he thinks that God has completely forgotten him. He thinks that God has cut himself off from the psalmist. So that's what's unbearable. God's silence. God's refusal to answer his prayer. But then the complaint ramp, ramps up even more, doesn't it, in verses 6 to 9. Because if, if the previous complaint was a bit passive, there's no mistaking here in verses 6 to 9 who the psalmist is blaming for the situation that he finds himself in. Verse 6, you have put me in the lowest pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me. Verse 8, you have taken from me my closest friends. It's not even that he allowed this to happen to the psalmist. It's not that, God, you sat there doing nothing whilst I was pushed closer and closer to the pit. But you are the one responsible. You are the only one responsible for my overwhelming pain and suffering. And to make things worse, not only has God seemed to have retreated away from the psalmist, but God has taken away his support network, his closest friends, those who would be there comforting him, helping him through his grief. God has made the psalmist repulsive to all of them. And so verse Verse 8, he finds himself in a corner. I am confined. I, I cannot escape, trapped, imprisoned by loneliness and rejection. The only prospect that remains, it's death. And so in verse 9, he says, my eyes are dim with grief. The Psalms often tell of those who use their eyes to, to look towards God for their salvation. Do, do these lyrics... Um, ring any bells? I lift my eyes towards the hills. To you I lift my eyes, O God. My eyes are toward you, O God, as they wait for God's salvation. But here, the psalmist's eyes have been waiting for too long. His eyes are weary, on the verge of closing forever. He can't do it much longer. He's losing hope. And so now the psalmist comes from, it, from another angle, he, he appeals to God to save him so that God might be glorified. Verses 9 to 12. I call to you, Lord, every day. 
I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Will your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? You see the logic here? If the psalmist goes down to the grave, then that's it, game over. In the Old Testament, God's miracles are almost exclusively to those who are still alive. I mean, the, the, the great acts of judgment on Egypt to bring them out of slavery and oppression, curing of leprosy, saving Daniel from the lion's den, and so on. But when it comes to wonders of being saved out of death itself, that's extremely rare. It's happened twice, maybe three times if you count that strange incident with Elisha's bones. But in other words, it's pretty safe for this psalmist to say, if I die, then there's no rescue. It's too late. But see how the psalmist here now appeals to God's character to glorify himself through his wonders here. He says, if I die, if I end up in a place where your wonders and deeds no longer have a place, what good is it to you, God? And so make your name great. Oh Lord, you are the God who has glorified yourself by saving your own people. So God, glorify yourself again through me. Now, what, what, what a bold thing to say, right? At this point, it's hard to tell whether this psalmist is speaking in line with God's will. Yes, God, glorify yourself. Do it for your sake. Or maybe he's trying to manipulate God just for his own sake. Or maybe it's a bit complex. Maybe it's a bit of both. But what is certain here is that this psalmist is absolutely desperate at this point. This is like his last-ditch effort to get God's attention. And so we come to the last few verses. The psalmist brings his cry to God to, in, in, in closing in, in, in a heart-wrenching way. Verse 15. From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. This suffering isn't just momentary. It's not just something that has just happened. It's, it's been with him from youth, verse 15. It afflicts him all day long, verse 17. This long continual, protracted suffering. This, this terror that God has brought upon the psalmist, it's, it's too much. I'm in despair. Your terrors have destroyed me. They completely engulfed me. God, I can't take it anymore. And with all my friends taken away by you, God, this is what my life consists of. I've got no hope. I'm all alone. You're not answering me. I've had it. And so he ends, darkness is my closest friend. We've been through the psalm again now. How are you feeling? What are we to do with this psalm? Is this psalm legit? Are we allowed to talk to God like this? Is this an example that we should be following? If you're like me, I think the first time we read this psalm, my first instinct is that this constitutes a, a lack of faith in God, doesn't it? Maybe it sounds like this psalmist is a bit of an immature Christian, maybe. I mean, haven't they heard of Romans 8.28? 
8.28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things. God works all things for the good of those who love him. Isn't that what the spiritual person is meant to meditate on? And even in, in, if in the Old Testament, the psalmist can only imagine death as the end of all meaningful existence. Surely we as Christians can't express such lack of hope, right? We, we have the prospect of eternal life before us. Haven't they read 2 Corinthians 4.17? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. How does the gospel fit within the psalm? We have the prospect of eternal life with God, the new creation to look forward to. How can we express such hopelessness? But I think before we jump the gun, I think there's a bit more to Psalm 88 than meets the eye. Instead, I think this psalm has actually been intentionally given to God's people as a model, a faithful model of how to respond during certain times of pain and suffering. Because, well, not only is this psalm, well, it's part of the scriptures, not only is this hymn, hymn book given to God's people uh, to meditate and sing on, Remember the top of the psalm again? Who was it written for? It's for the director of music. This sad psalm is meant to be sung corporately, to be used as God's, uh, it's used together as, as God's redeemed people. And so the question is how? How and, and, and why is this a good example for God's people to pray and sing? Well, I think we need to make a few observations here. The first thing to note is what this psalm is not doing. This psalm is not complaining about God. This psalm is not complaining about God. Did you, did you notice that as you read the psalm? The psalmist isn't venting his frustration. He's not talking about, be, about God behind his back, about his lack of faithfulness to some third party. This psalmist is directing all his complaints to God. He's, compla he's complaining to God. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? See, by, by complaining to God, he isn't turning his back to God. He actually hasn't given up hope on God. Because by talking to God, he's actually revealing his faith in God. Do you see, do you see the, the contradiction here? Like, even as he complains that God isn't listening to him, that God has rejected him, but this very act of crying out makes sense only if he believes that God is in fact listening that God can act. This is a person who has a deep trust in the God of the scriptures, the God who saves. A deep trust that is maintained even when his entire life experience doesn't line up with these beliefs that he has about God. A second reason, a second reason why this psalm is a righteous response is because he recognizes that God is the only sovereign God, the only all-powerful person who can make a difference. The God of the Scriptures has revealed himself that way, hasn't he? Just from last week's sermon, we saw that. He is the only one in control of all things. There, is, there are no competing deities or, or forces of evil that can threaten his will. God doesn't stand there powerless as Satan or, or some evil uh, force does its damage to God's people. It's all actually been directed by God. It's God's will being played out. And so this psalmist shows that he has a 
deep knowledge and understanding of who the God of the Bible is. Yes, it is God who has put him there. And can you see how by him saying that, that actually testifies that he believes that God is the only one who has the ability to save him. God put him there, so ultimately God is the only one who has the power to rescue him. But what about this psalmist's tone? It sounds so accusatory. It, It sounds so disrespectful. Can we really say these words to God? I think one hurdle that we we might face today is uh, as we wonder uh, whether we can pray these words is typically when when we're reading psalms like this, we're sitting on a nice comfy sofa, bubble tea in one hand in front of a big screen TV. By and large, we live in comfort. We live in a religiously free Australia. We haven't suffered in such a way that makes us feel like we can say these words genuinely. And, and that's probably true, right? We, most of us haven't. But the thing is, some of us probably have. Out of a congregation of this size, I'm certain that some of us have experienced extreme pain and darkness at some point. It might be years of chronic depression. As you switch from one medication to another, each time seeing a little bit of progress just to fall back into the dark pit that you were before seeing one counsellor after another, there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. And as the years drag on, you wonder, why hasn't God answered my prayers? Is He even there? And so maybe this might be the cry for you to God. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Maybe you've experienced the loss of a, lo- the loss of a loved one, a family member, a close friend, your own child, a miscarriage? How, God, could you allow this to happen? Why did you do this, Lord? You are a loving God. Why? And in the loneliness, as you wonder all these things, as you can't see how you're ever going to crawl out of this dark pit of despair, as you wonder how you're going to survive with this giant hole in your life now, you might try to cry out to God. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. Now, before we jump too far to Christ and all that, can can you just see for, for just a split moment, can you just see why this psalm and psalms like it are so important for God's people? Because at a time when we are most likely to buckle under the pressure, at a time when the, the world seems like it's crumbling all around us, That's the time when we're tempted to think that God is not there. That's the time when we think God doesn't care about us. But what is this psalm doing? This psalm, it doesn't just tell us to toughen up, get over it. This psalm opens up a line of communication back to God at the most critical moment. We are told to turn to God when we are tempted to run away from God. And this psalm, like many others like it in the Psalter, it gives us words to express express the the depths of our sorrow and anguish when we are too low, too overwhelmed to even know what to say to God. And if these words feel like they're, they're honest, they're too raw, it's because they are, aren't they? 
And this psalm encourages us. Yes, you need to be absolutely honest to God. You need to be raw with God. God knows everything about you already. There's no point hiding it, thinking, I'm okay, God, I'm okay. It's, it's not okay. I'm suffering, God, please help me. God wants us to be real with him. Because God does, in fact, listen, doesn't he? God does, in fact, care, even when it doesn't feel like he is. What about those of us who perhaps haven't had such intense and constant suffering as the psalmist has? Well, we might not pray this exact prayer exactly the way it is, but we can probably adopt a few things, a few certain aspects of this psalm, can't we, ourselves? What are some examples? What about that persistent sin that we just can't shake no matter how long? Father God, you have told me that you have sent the Holy Spirit within me, transforming me into the likeness of your Son. You say that I am a new creation in Christ, no longer living for earthly desires. I believe that. But then why can't I shake this sin? I'm so tired of stumbling over and over again. I feel like I've been stuck in this cycle forever. I know Jesus has taken all my guilt and punishment. I know I'm saved, but I still feel guilty. I, feel, I still feel dirty. Please come and help me, God. Please save me. When you feel trapped in a cycle of sin, it only makes sense to reach out to God to save you, the God who has saved you. What else can we rightly lament about? How about the times when we feel spiritually dry? We know all the right things, right? I know God created the universe, the world. I know God sent his son to die for my sins. I know that. Yes, eternal life is waiting for me in heaven. And that can't be compared with anything else. I know, I, I, I know. But I don't feel it. I'm supposed to feel joy, right? But, but what if I don't? I'm supposed to be fired up about your mission, your great sacrifice, but I feel like I'm just going through the motions. I, 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 it, it's mechanical. It, it, it's lifeless. I know you love me up here, but in here, you're far away. Do you know what this psalm tells us to do? Bring it to God. Be honest. Be raw with God. Ask God to fire you up. Ask God to have his spirit at work in you. See, even if you might not pray these exact words, these words might be maybe too extreme for us. We can still emulate the sentiment, can't we? Help me, Lord. Not just to know about your love, but to know your love for me. I feel like you're not really there, so I feel so alone. Please keep me from falling away. Please help me to grow to know your presence. See, this psalm and, and psalms like it, it gives us a model to follow when we are completely lost words. When we are so deep in grief and confusion, we, we begin to lose sight of God's goodness. This psalm reminds us to turn back to God when we are most tempted to not talk to God. And if you've never experienced that before, then maybe instead of saying that it would never happen to us, we need to remember that suffering as God's faithful people are, well, that's nothing new. And, and here in the Psalms are a, God, a collection of godly responses of how to bring our suffering and pain when we, when we come across it back to God. Be prepared. Immerse yourself in the Psalm. Build it as part of a, your tool set to deal with suffering. 
back, we must reflect everything back to God, the God who saves us, and yes, who has saved us through Jesus. And it's in the gospel, it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have an even greater to pray like this, isn't it? This psalmist knows God as the God who saves. He, he knows of the miracles of Exodus out of slavery in Egypt. He knows of the acts of deliverance for Israel throughout Israel's history. But we know something so much greater. God has sent his only son for us. That he would sacrifice himself on a cross to take away all our sins. He did that while we were his enemies. He did that so that we might have hope after death, not like this dark pit, this black hole. We know that even though we die, we have an eternal, everlasting hope. Death no longer has the final say like for the psalmist. And so if God loves us this much, if we know God loves us this much, then shouldn't we have even more confidence that when we cry out to God, when we're honest to God, that God will listen to us, that God will care for us? Another reason we need to be comfortable with, with this psalm is that it helps us to model how to help others in their suffering. See, I think I, I, I'm tempted to jump to Romans 8.28. I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm tempted to, to inadvertently heap guilt upon people when they're suffering. Get over it. Don't you know how awesome God's love is? Don't, don't you see the future that lies ahead? But instead of telling people that need, they need to be more spiritual, they need to grow up, look to heaven. Maybe we need to read this psalm with them together. Maybe we need to give them the right words to start praying to God. Remember, this, this psalm was written for the director of music. This lament, this depressing song was primarily meant to be sung together as God's people. And do you see the irony here? Look at the last verse of the psalm with me again. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. But you see how this unravels as God's people come together to sing this? I mean, some in our congregation might be feeling like darkness is their only friend. Everyone, seems, everyone around me seems to have it all together. Even if I look like I'm doing okay, deep down I'm not okay. I feel all alone. No one actually understands me. But what happens when an entire congregation, those around you, beside you, they're all singing these words of lament? What if those around you are all praying this psalm with you? Then you're no longer alone, are you? You're no longer bearing all this guilt and grief by yourself. You now have a community of God's people emotionally and spiritually supporting you. Isn't it just awesome how God provides for his people in this way? By providing a psalm to allow his people to comfort one another, so that, to ensure that no one is lonely? But ultimately, ultimately, to pray lament, to cry out to God whose sovereignty is unchallenged, it points us to the same God of the gospel, doesn't it? The gospel who, who, who speaks of a God who, who has saved us, not when we were powerful, not when we were righteous, but when we were weak, when we were nothing. 
when we don't have it all together. That's when Christ has saved us. So, so why do we think now, now that we're his child, now that we're his children, that we must have it all together before we can cry out to God in suffering, to, to express how we feel before God? Thinking that God won't listen to our pain, he won't listen to my loneliness until I get over it, until I grow up, think of mature, mature, mature things, spiritual things, before we can turn back to God. Why? If God had compassion on us while he, we were his enemies, wouldn't we have so much more hope that God would have compassion on us now that we're his children? Wouldn't he hear the prayers and want us to be open and honest with him even more now that we're his own? Of course he would, right? And so Psalm 88 and many other Psalms like it, it helps us to put this truth into action. I'm not saying, though, that we need to whip out Psalm 88 every time something slightly negative or slightly inconvenient happens to us. No, no, I'm not saying that. But all I'm saying is this psalm and many psalms like it have been completely missing in the vocabulary of the Christian church. And we need to add it back into our vocabulary. Add words and prayers that cry out to God. Add it to a tool set so that we have a much more rounded and balanced approach when we deal with the sufferings of other people around us. Yes, there is a time. There is a time to lovingly point our brothers and sisters in Christ to be sure of the perfect hope we have. Jesus is our rock. He is unshakable. I'm not denying that. We want to eventually move people to a place where they're reminded that their suffering that's not the only reality that there is. There's something more. Yes, we do want to move people to a place where they can wholeheartedly sit comfortably and, and cry out Romans 8.28. We do want that. But sometimes, for a little while, this psalm gives us a model of how to grapple with the fact that we still live in a broken world. And we, we're not made perfect yet. We, we are still, in many ways, broken people. Yes, the goal is that we might be eventually made perfect. There will be a time when we look back on all our suffering, no matter how deep, and rejoice in how that has built us up and how it has been taken away from God. There will be that time. It will come. But for many, for all of us, that, ha that time hasn't come yet. That time hasn't been perfected. And so while we wait, as we continue to live in this fallen world full of hurt and pain, as we live in mortal and weak bodies which don't yet fully see God's glory yet, let us remember Psalm 88. Let us remember how messed up this world still is and how much we need Jesus to come back to bring in a new creation, to be reminded to cry out for God to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and to remind those hurting around us to cry out to the God who hears, who does care, the God who will wipe away every tear from every eye. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we, we thank you for the truths of the gospel. We, we know that they are unshakable, they are absolute truths, you bringing a new creation, will, you will wipe away every tear from every eye. But Lord, 
help us to recognize that not everyone can sit with that truth comfortably. Help us to realize that many are just suffering in their anguish and their grief, no matter what it is. Then some of us might be here. Father, will you not cut off lines of communication. Help us not to cut off lines of communication to you. Help us to be raw. Help us to be honest with you at times when we don't feel like it. Help us to turn to psalms like this, that you have already given us words to to speak back to you when we don't know what to say. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who has given us these psalms, who has shown us that you care for us so deeply. Father God, please help us to be a church that recognizes this. You're a God of compassion, that you long for us to be honest with you. And help, help us to be a church that uses your word, the full repertoire of your word, to comfort and to bring people back to hope as well. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.